Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome to a new week, Solar Warrior. Here we go. This is Two for Tuesday. Whether that's a tactical Tuesday or just content from one of our many live events like SPI Podcast Lounge, this is going to be a short form conversation typically with subject matter experts designed to give you the practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business or career and grow with us here on Suncast as I know you will. I'm so glad that you've decided to join us again and level up your game. Remember, you can always find the resources and learn more about today's guests and recommendations in the blog at mysuncast.com. So get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior. Here we go with another powerful conversation on Suncast. We are live once again at the Podcast Lounge, sponsored by Radiant Reed, produced by Suncast Media in conjunction with None other than Solar Energy Trade Shows, SIA and SIPA. Thank you so much for your patronage. Thank you for your listenership. If you're just getting into the grand ballroom over here and you want to see the next session on the Podcast Lounge, I encourage you to mosey on over. We've got some nice comfy benches and there's a whole area right there in the hydrogen networking area where you can hang out as well. In the meantime... I welcome our first guest, Mr. Jim Spano from Radiant Re. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Great to have you back Great on to be here. Suncast. Indeed, and we have uh, well, we had a lot of. Uh, Great response to your episode on Suncast. It was uh, people are very interested in the product that you guys are bringing to market. Super. Yeah. So why don't we talk a bit about that product? You guys have a new program that offers uh, liquidity, effectively, to developers that would otherwise be cash strapped to be able to expand their portfolio. Would you help me understand how does your program at Radiant Re work? How, as we as we say in the program title, is it eliminating capital constraints for CNI developers? Sure. Um, recognizing that the product was actually developed by a solar developer. So obviously it was designed to enhance the ability of the solar developer to build his business and to um, exponentially grow their ability to develop more projects. Um, one of the things that we're trying to accomplish, of course, is further penetration of renewables and reduction of the carbon footprint. And in order to do that, you need to provide capital to the markets so that they can facilitate faster and, and uh, uh, more uh, efficient growth in, in the industry. So the first place uh, we look for, we've, we've seen a dramatic decline in the cost of the actual equipment. We've seen system costs you know, dropping uh, precipitously for the last eight, 10 years. And like anything else, you can only drop so far and then you hit a bottom. Um, and I think we're pretty much close to the bottom when it comes to our equipment. So now we have to look at soft costs. Mm. Um, there's a lot of activity within the industry to lower uh, all your permitting and all, all the other soft costs, standardize of documents, all that type of thing. Um, 
And then the other area is, of course, the cost of capital. The cost of capital has been extremely high in our industry, primarily because of the nature in which these assets have been financed in the past. Um, most financing options that are available to developers are mini-perm mini type debt, which mm -hmm. is short tenor or short terms, um, short amortization schedules, which significantly inhibit the cash flows of a project because obviously when you're trying to amortize a 25 or 35 year asset in a five to 10 year period, um, most of the revenue is going to that amortization and there's very little cash flow to service debt or to, to provide any uh, relief to the actual developers. Mm -hmm. So ultimately they have to sell their projects at NTP because they don't have the capital to take it out to uh, COD, where right. they could actually capture the value of, of the projects that they develop. Yeah, and just so I want to make sure, for those who maybe are listening without as much detailed knowledge of how the, pro the projects, uh, acronyms and such work, I will occasionally jump in and, uh, and explain the acronyms. So NTP is notice to proceed. It's the moment when the project is ready to start construction. And COD is, uh, depending on where who, who you're speaking with utility or commercial has different meanings but it is commercial operation date for the most part and that is when uh the loan can be finalized and closed out and everyone can get paid correct so what we did is uh we came up with a product that's designed to enable the developers to develop more projects without the need to put capital out of their pocket mm. which is typically the inhibitor mm -hmm. the constraint uh that prevents developers from going past that notice to proceed to the point of, of commissioning or, mm -hmm. or commercial operation date. Um, bear in mind that the, the value of a project at COD versus NTP can be as much as two to three times for the developer. So right. um, one of the things that, we, that we're trying to do is enable those developers to really capture the value that they've created. In the mm -hmm. past and in the current paradigm, they develop the projects and then they pass it on to the financial industry and the financial industry basically captures all that value. Right. Um, and the reason principally is because someone has to burden the risk of building the project and there's a huge capital outlay to build the project. There are, what, are, what else is involved, enveloped in that shift from NTP to COD where the risk is diminished by some meaningful amount and the developer can therefore be paid more? Okay, sure. First, of course, we reduce construction risk. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a... a Interestingly, it's really not a significant risk, but it's mm -hmm. underwritten as a significant risk, which uh, um, significantly inhibits the developers attaining the value that they've developed. Yeah. Um, other than that, you, as, as you build the project, as you get closer and closer to having it as a commercial operation date, with a financing package already predetermined mm -hmm. so that you literally have financing from cradle to grave, um, what you've now done is converted a traditional sale of a, of a construction project to the sale of an asset that has fixed capital cost because mm -hmm. you have a fixed term, fixed, all, all your, your capital is predetermined. Right. You have, uh, aside from the fixed cost, you have fixed, uh, obviously we have fixed cost. We know what our cost to build it is. Yeah. And then you have fixed revenue. Yeah. So when you have fixed cost, fixed revenue, fixed cost of capital, you have a bond-like asset as right. opposed to a construction project. Mm -hmm. 
Now you're selling cash flow and you're looking at a, a, the net operating income of the project and using a capitalization rate in order to determine value mm. as opposed to the industry determining what the potential value of a, of a project that's still to be constructed is, right. is worth. Yeah, and, and for those who are unfamiliar with the construction cycle of a solar project, the development cycle alone can often take uh, in excess of two years, often three, four, five years. Then the construction cycle, once the uh, funds are approved, there are innumerable number of risks depending on the time of year, depending on the location of the project, depending on as things as simple as the backlog of, uh, of interconnection queue, the backlog of uh, maybe your transformer, et cetera, right? There are things that the bank doing an, an amortization schedule or trying to figure out the, the risk profile of a project aren't going to assume are going to go right. They're going to assume they're going to go wrong and they're going to bake that into the cost. Correct. Um, e- even looking at when uh, a project, the equipment cost, for example, mm-hmm. um, when you have a three or four year development cycle and you're looking for financing to support that, the banks are going to be concerned about, well, what direction are, are equipment prices going? Are right. they going to be available when it's needed? Um, you have regulatory risk. Are, are there going to be any changes in incentive programs? Mm-hmm. Uh, are there going to be any changes in laws that limit your ability to develop the size of the project that you had anticipated? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a significant amount of risk that once you get to COD, and you're all under your contracts are all in place, all that risk is eliminated and that's where you capture all of that value. Yeah. So with Radiant REIT, what we're gonna do is we're gonna really eliminate capital constraints. We're gonna provide 100% construction financing minus 50% of the developer's margin. Mm -hmm. What that means is the developer doesn't have to come out with any money out of pocket um, and they can actually pull money out during the construction cycle, they can pull half of their profits out so that they can support their other development activity and their overhead of their company right. that enables them to develop more projects. And obviously, as they develop more projects, I can loan 100% minus half their cost. As they build up their balance sheet of assets and we're, bu- we're building up our ledger of, mo- of mortgages, it's a very symbiotic relationship between the developer and the financier. Right which differs from a traditional finance, which is equity finance. Mm-hmm. And in equity finance, there's always a struggle between the developer and the equity owner because as, you, as the developer wants to develop the project at the least cost possible, the equity owner wants the most efficient system built. Mm-hmm. So there's always that, that tension between the developer and the, and the uh, financier. By providing debt as opposed to equity, we're completely aligned with that developer. So we eliminate that tension. Um, Now, to make it even more affordable, we waive all application fees. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, if you go for a mini-perm loan, you're going to have to put up uh, a significant amount of capital. Before they write you a check for your project, Mm. you have to write the check to pay for the legal fees, the due diligence, you're going to write points and whatever other expenses that you have. All of the bank's expenses are passed on to you up front because they're not going to spend the money without getting re- repaid immediately. Yeah. We build all those costs back into the loan so that they're amortized over the 20, 25-year period term of your, of your loan, and they're de minimis. They're, they're, they're hardly noticeable. Does the developer have some sort of annuity in the program that you're building? Do they have some sort of an ownership stake in that? Well, that's the whole point. They have 100% ownership. We have no equity. We're only a lender. Huh. So we're enabling them to own their projects 100% minus 
the tax equity component. And let me speak to that for a moment. Unlike most bank finances, they're going to give you the debt. Where we differ is we give you 100% of the capital stack, as I said, from cradle to grave. So once we get the project to COD, and I should, before I get to that, the tax equity issue, let me just address how do we get that project to NTP, mm-hmm. from NTP to COD. What we're doing is we're going to finance 90%, I'm sorry, we're going to finance 100% minus half your margin. So to keep an example simple, let's assume you had a 20% margin. That means I'm going to, I'm going to finance 90% of that construction cost. If you're margin is 20%, it means your cost is 80%. Mm-hmm. So every time I make a 90% payment against the milestone, you're capturing 10% out of pocket and you're leaving 10% in as your sponsor equity. And we need you to do that in order to have an alignment of interest to ensure that if there's stress within the project, that you have an interest in making sure that it's addressed right away. Sure. Um, so by, by providing 90% of that construction cost. At COD, I've actually funded a total of 90%. Now what I do is I prearrange a tax equity partner to come in. We're, we're uh, raising tax equity funds on an annual basis so that we have tax equity predetermined, all the collateral agreements, all the issues that are typically stressful between the lender and the, and the tax equity investor. We've eliminated all that stress by prearranging the program. How, how long, if one wanted to raise their own tax equity, does it typically take? It's not like people don't do that, but how long does that cycle take? Uh, that's that, on average. I mean, is it, there maybe there is, a, is there a heuristic? It's think about three months, think about a year. Actually, it's, it's not that simple. Um, <laughs> in order to raise a tax equity fund, you're raising significant. It's not a, it's mm. not a, you can't do a five or $10 million deal and try and raise a tax equity fund to support it. Mm. You need to do a hundred to $200 million fund in order okay. to get tax equity to support it. it. So for the most part, small and medium sized developers don't have access to tax equity. Yeah. They have to then go out and, and, uh, uh, look for partners that will come in as a tax equity and typically they can't find them and as right. a result they have to sell at NTP to that aggregator who has prearranged to tax someone equity. yeah someone who has them or or they're selling to a utility or you know a, correct a, a where they can self absorb yep, the tax benefits right they're selling to a dominion or a next era yeah that's right so now we're 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 doing saying you don't have to sell we're going to provide that tax equity so now we've built the project i bring the tax equity in in the example I gave, we were funding 90% and the developer had 10% interest in the pro, uh, 10% of the capital stack he's funded mm-hmm. through his interest. Now I bring in the tax equity investor and for purposes of, of math, to keep it simple, mm-hmm. let's assume the tax equity investor is covering 35% of the cap, cap stack. Mm-hmm. So before I was funding 90% of the construction, when he brings in that 35%, my construction loan goes down to 50, I'm sorry, my term loan goes down to 55%. And I'm going to provide you a term loan that has tenor and amortization schedules equal to your revenue contract. Yeah. So if you have a 25-year PPA, I'm going to give you a 25-year fixed interest loan and a 25-year amortization schedule. And what that does is it significantly increases the cash flow that's available to go to the owner of the system, which happens to be the developer in our model. Is there, is there sorry, go ahead. Um, by that developer being able to capture all of that cash flow, we're... We're, enable, we're enabling him to actually not only generate profits from his development activities, but now he's capturing all the profits, the delta between the return of the actual project and mm-hmm. the cost of the debt. Yeah. Um, now, at the end of the tax equity period, when the, when the flip occurs, there's always another stressful point mm-hmm. when the 
flip occurs, what hap- two things happen. First, the tax equity... And when you mean, what you mean is when the tax equity investor flips out of the, of the structure, so they get paid and the equity returns to the development. Correct. Just okay. for clarity for the audience, yep. um, a tax equity investor puts capital in, um, gets the benefit of the tax write-offs and the, and the mm-hmm. ITC, and then at, gets a... Because the IRS will not allow a tax transaction, right. they're actually making an investment. When they put that 35% they're in, owner. Yep. they're... They're going to be a 99% owner of the project. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the 35% that they put in, they're going to get a return on that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's assume an average return of 5%. Sure. Now, when the tax equity flip occurs and you're at the end of the five years, now you can take them out and now you become the 99% and It's always owner. five years? Uh, yes. There's a okay. five-year uh, clawback period that the IRS has. If ownership changes within five years, you have to repay the ITC. Yep. So... Now, at the end of the five years, what we're able to do, typically what you can't do is refinance them out. And the reason is that, with an, again, with a mini-perm debt, there's not enough cash flow to meet the debt service coverage ratio. Right. I was going to ask about the DSCR. Yeah. So, without the, without the DSCR, uh, without meeting that DSCR, you end up with the tax equity investor staying in the, in the project. Yep. And when they stay in the project, they continue to get a 5% return on 35% of the yeah. capital. And for, again, just to make it dead and that simple, like... A debt service coverage ratio is the amount of revenue required of the project to satisfy the lender's um, sense of security that the project's going to self-fund, that they're not going to have to do a capital call and keep the project afloat. That's right. What, when a debt service coverage ratio is real simple, is mm-hmm. for every dollar of revenue, I, I'm sorry, for every dollar of debt, debt. I need a dollar ten, dollar twenty, dollar thirty of revenue, and it's and it's as high as a dollar break dollar one point four. It can get it can get up. Most banks are in the one point two five to one point three five range. Sometimes you can see a low as one point two. So so my question actually was around that service coverage ratio. Whether through your structure you're able to lower that uh, that (laughs) that threshold. What we're able to do is lower that DSCR to one point one. Wow. And at a 1.1 DSCR, what that means is it enables me to have those high loan to values because I only need $1.10 mm, of revenue yeah. for each dollar of debt. That's right. Yep. If I needed $1.30 of revenue for each dollar of debt, I'd, ha- I'd have to have much less debt. Yeah. And you have to put in, well, essentially you have to put in more equity to be able to get the loan. Right. So yep. that's less debt, more equity. Yeah. Um, by having a low DSCR, basically you can have very little equity um, and, and a significant amount of debt. Right. Now, how do we do that when nobody else can? And it's obviously a very high risk. The way that we're able to manage that risk is we're, we're issuing a master loan to a developer, mm-hmm. and then we're scheduling each project under that master loan agreement. So once you've negotiated a master loan with me, you can go develop as many projects as you want, and we don't have to do a whole new set of loan documents. The mm-hmm. closings are very easy. We just schedule it and, and, uh, and close on the loan. Now, what that also enables me to do is cross-collateralize. By cross-collateralizing, if that one project is under stress and the revenue isn't meeting that debt service coverage ratio, I can look to all the other projects and cumulatively say, am I meeting that debt service coverage ratio? Within the master loan. Correct. Doing all the scheduled projects. Jim, is there a particular type of developer that you guys are finding is more attracted to this style of uh, financial arrangement? What's been really interesting and what I've really been surprised is we, we really designed it for the small, medium-sized developer. Mm-hmm. We're finding that a lot of the larger developers have come to us. We're issuing you know, a couple hundred dollar million loans to developers now. Um, so yes, it's, it's, a, 
It's really across the board. Is there, well, you mentioned size of developer. Is there a size or a demographic in the application stage of these deals that you're seeing surface that seems to be favorable? Um, well, first, I should note that we do have a $10 million minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, but we will give some relief to a developer because we are trying to encourage the small, medium-sized developer. So if you can demonstrate to me that you have a real pipeline and you can hit that $10 million over 12-month period, I'll fund a loan as little as 2 or $3 million. But bear in mind that we're going to be very particular in looking at that pipeline. We're not looking at the Bragawatt pipeline that many developers like to talk about. We need projects that are, that are very likely to be commissioned within that 12-month period. And then one of the, uh, you know, you guys have recently come to market with this product. As, uh, as we wrap up, I'd love to hear how the market is reacting and what the results, or the, at least the early results look like. Yes, it has been far exceeding any of our expectations. Um, frankly, I made a commitment with my team to originate $1 billion worth of loans in the first 12 months. Um, and there was some skepticism. Uh, there was skepticism by our investors. Um, in fact, there was so much skepticism that our first investor came to us and said, look, you go originate the loans. We'll fund them ourselves. And then once you hit the scale that you claim you can hit, we'll transfer them into your, into your account. And with that, we went out to market. Within eight weeks, I accumulated $380 million worth of debt that's needed in the next 90 days and $2.44 billion worth of debt that's needed in the next 12 months. So, and that was, quite frankly, before this last week. And in this last week, I have to imagine I'll, I'll come home with another $200 million worth of immediate applications. Um, so the, the market has been responding incredibly well. Um, it, far exceeding any of certainly my expectation and I had pretty high <laughs> expectations you tend to <laughs> yes well phenomenal success and we're seeing it here at the podcast lounge with the traffic that is coming through not only to see what we're doing here in the lounge but to meet with you and to learn more about the program and the product uh, that Radiant Reed has is brought to market it'll be exciting to follow and it's great to have this follow-up interview with you uh, after our time on uh, on the show um, a couple of months ago Super. It was very nice to be with you again. And you know, I always enjoy your company, Nico. Indeed. The feeling is mutual. Jim Spano is a founder, co-founder? Co-founder. Co-founder of Radiant Reet. And uh, you have heard him live here at Solar Power International at Podcast Lounge. Thanks for joining us again, Jim. Thank you, Nico. All right. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors. But I do hope that you'll check out the other Two for Tuesday episodes and let me know what you think of these shorter format discussions. You want more like this? You can find more than 200 episodes, resources, highlights from the discussions, along with social media links to each guest episode, book recommendations, and so much more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. And that's also where you'll find other ways to engage with the Suncast tribe, like subscribing to our weekly emails or even joining the exclusive inner circle we affectionately refer to as the Guild. If you're on Spotify or iTunes, I so appreciate your rating and review so that others can also find Suncast more easily. A special thank you to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Follow the links there for any offers we've discussed here today. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>